Welcome to the Forency Podcast. Forency.us is a language training website for Hebrew, Arabic, and Russian designed specifically for intermediate to advanced learners. Our daily lessons prepare you to read real foreign language news articles and listen to actual foreign language media on a wide variety of subjects to put you on the path to language mastery. In this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Professor Ed Greenstein, who is a professor emeritus of biblical studies at Bar Ilan University. Professor Greenstein has conducted considerable research and analysis into what he calls the Near Eastern Fugitive Hero Pattern, which is a storytelling convention that is found throughout the ancient Near East and is particularly prevalent in the Hebrew Bible. I've included links to his research and a lecture on this issue in the notes for this podcast, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm here today with Professor Ed Greenstein, who is the Professor Emeritus of Biblical Studies at Bar Ilan University. Thanks for joining me. Good to be with you. So today we're going to be talking about the Near Eastern fugitive hero narrative or pattern that you've written several academic studies on, which have been published in academic journals. And this is a pattern that appears throughout the Near East, but is gains a special emphasis when it comes to the biblical stories. For whatever reason, they took a liking to this pattern. And you've seemed to focus on it for much of your research. I'd appreciate for people who aren't familiar with it, if you can give me a high-level overview of what the Near Eastern Fugitive Pattern is. Okay. Well, as uh, most people know, when we tell stories, we tend to follow uh, certain traditional patterns you know, that we've picked up in our lives and that are common in our culture. If you think of a well-known example, for example, is the Western movie, where the drama is basically of only three different types. It's all the same three plots, you know, but they're worked out in lots of different ways. Same thing with music. You know, there are only a certain number of different ways that you can manipulate melodies and combine them with harmonies, but people choose a particular pattern and then they work it out in their own ways. Well, I'm, there are many stories about heroes around the world. One of those patterns in very general terms is of a hero who needs to leave home or seeks to leave home, spends a long time abroad, either pursuing some idea or notion or biding his time until he can return in power. And then he returns either to reform his society or in order to take control. There's a very specific pattern that we find only in the ancient East and in the Hebrew Bible. And that pattern I call the fugitive hero narrative pattern. It has 14 particular points to it or features. And not all of them occur in all of the major stories, but most of them occur in any of the major stories that I will include in this pattern. Let me just run through the sure. features with you, okay? First, I'll pass on the numbers, and you can just follow or you can count on your own. The hero is a younger or youngest brother. There occurs some political or personal crisis which causes the hero to flee or to push him into exile. The hero enjoys the support of a female patron, sometimes a goddess. The hero marries the daughter of his host in exile. The hero assumes a position of responsibility in the host's household. The hero has a divine encounter, often through divination or revelation. The hero is joined by kin or people from his home country. There is a seven-year period, usually of exile. The hero repels an attack or a series of attacks. 
The hero takes spoil or plunders. The hero then returns home. He is restored to a position of leadership and honor. And in the end, the hero establishes or renews a cult, some type of worship or adoration of a deity or of a pantheon. And so this particular pattern right, can be found in five different stories from outside the Bible in the ancient Near East. One, and the earliest, is from around 1900 BCE, and it's a story from Egypt, the narrative of Sinue, which we spell S-I-N-U-H-E. He was a uh, bodyguard, apparently, in the Egyptian palace when there was a coup. He was afraid that he was going to be found on the wrong side of the coup, and so he fled to what's now Lebanon and made a successful career there. But before he wanted to come home, he had to get the support of gods, and he had to get an invitation from Egypt. He thought, being a traitor of sorts, that he wouldn't be welcome, but in fact, he was welcomed back home. The next story that we know is that of Idrimi, king of Alulach, which is in northern Syria. He was born in Aleppo, which is in north-central north eastern Syria. There was an attack on his town of Aleppo by an apparently a, an Indo-European kingdom known as Mitanni, which probably led to his father being killed. His father probably was the king of Aleppo. And he and his brothers fled to east-central Syria to a town called Emar, where they bided their time. He alone, however, crossed the Syrian desert, made it into what we would call northern Canaan, found a whole group of expatriates like himself, and with an indication from the storm god, he mounted an army, returned to north Syria, and took over Alulach, which is a little west of Aleppo, probably through a a treaty arrangement with the Mitanni king. The next story we know from the ancient East is of Katushili III, a king of the Hittites in Asia Minor in the 13th century before the Common Era. And Katushili wasn't supposed to be the king, but when his brother died, he saw to it that the rightful king, his nephew, was seated on the throne. However, his nephew kept him away from the center of power so it was a kind of a forced exile where Hatushili was able to accomplish conquests for the Hittites in the kind of uncivilized north of Asia Minor. He developed a kind of small kingdom of his own there. And eventually, when he felt that he was being shunted aside too much by his nephew, the king, he took an army and he took back the capital of the Hittites and made himself the king. The next story we know from outside the Bible is actually quite a bit later. It's from the 7th century in Assyria, which is in northeastern Mesopotamia. And uh, there we find that King Sennacherib, who is known as the, the one who laid siege to Jerusalem around 700 before the Common Era, he was assassinated by his sons, and according to his own story, at least, Esar Hadon, one of his sons, his youngest son, was promised the throne. And so through a series of comebacks, after he had been in exile himself in Syria, where his mother was from, he came back with a lot of power to Assyria. 
and he took the throne. He made uh, took special pains to make sure that his own chosen son would take over after him. The last of the stories from outside the Bible is that of Nabonidus, king of Babylon in the mid-6th century BCE. And uh, Nabonidus, his mother was also from the Arameans in Syria, interestingly. Nabonidus was very loyal to the moon uh, god uh, called Sin, who was worshipped in Syria. And he felt very much at odds with the priests of Babylon who were hostile to this particular cult. And so what Nabonidus did was to kind of exile himself as the king in northern Arabia, in Tema, where he stayed for 10 years. And eventually he was able to return to Babylon and establish the temple of the moon god that he wanted all along to establish in Syria. So what you find in all of these stories is that you're dealing with someone who is an unlikely hero, not someone who was not supposed to be the king, someone who was not supposed to be honored, someone who has to, in a sense, apologize for taking control or gaining honor. And that's where this story comes in, because this story is molded in such a way that, A, it shows great support of the hero by the gods or by a particular god or goddess, and B, it shows the desire of the king or the hero to establish a new cult or ritual, which then shows that king's particular devotion, in a sense, showing how that king earned or merited the favor of the god or gods. Now we turn to the Bible. Okay. Right, so, so who, the, who are the major characters from, from the Bible that share this, or from the Hebrew Bible that share this, these traits and okay. this pattern? So this is the thing. All of the major narratives in the Bible, the most major narratives, are patterned on the fugitive hero story plan, right? The story of Jacob, the story of Joseph, the story of Moses, the story of David, and if I can anticipate a bit, the story of the people of Israel itself, which is, I believe, why this story becomes so popular in the Bible. There are also a number of fragments of the story or partial outlines of the story in the narratives about such biblical characters as Hagar, the Egyptian wife or concubine of Abraham, an Edomite king named Hadad, who gave trouble to Solomon, King Jeroboam, son of Nevat, who also gave trouble to Solomon and who became the king of the northern tribes of Israel after the death of Solomon, the story of Jephthah the judge, and the story of King Joash or Joash, who as a baby was spirited off to save the royal line of Judah and eventually was brought back to power. Those stories, however, are truncated. And I think the reason is that those stories were not about the establishment of some particular cult or ritual, whereas all the other stories are. Like the story of Jacob, for example, is about the founding of the Bethel Shrine and various other altars that Jacob establishes. The story of Joseph initiates the practice of burial in coffins, which is the first time such a thing happens in the Bible. And he also insists on being that his bones be brought back to the land of Israel after the Israelites come back from Egypt to the land of Canaan, to the land of Israel, and be buried there. 
I don't think I need to elaborate on how Moses is the founder of the main biblical cult, the rituals and laws of the Torah. Right, but I do want us to, not right now, but whenever it's natural to segue into it, I want to get into your explanation of how the Moses story then deviates from the traditional pattern. Oh, okay. Let me just finish then and and say that David, of course, not only does he plan the temple, but something that I think is probably not noticed, you know, by casual readers of the Bible, is that he appoints his own sons to be priests. That reference is 2 Samuel 8.18, if you're interested in that. Maybe later we'll come back to how this was an important story for the Israelites themselves. Okay, but in, in the case, in each of these stories, there are deviations or variations, right, which are adapted for the purposes of each story. You're alluding to the fact that I recently published something about Moses and how the story of Moses is different from a lot of the other stories, right? because in the story that we have in the Bible, Moses does not seek a, an oracle or some revelation from God in order to find out if he can go back to Egypt to end his exile and return to his home. And don't forget that for Moses, the home, his homeland is Egypt. He doesn't seek that. However, the story of Moses is quite peculiar. And if you understand that in the background of that story is the fugitive hero pattern, you're able to make sense of things that otherwise don't read very smoothly in the biblical text. What's interesting to me about the, the Moses story is that it seems like it captures the pattern pretty clear, even more clearly than some of the other stories. It's more clear cut how he's a younger brother flees in, into exile, his establishment of, of a cult later on, they all seem much more clear-cut and well-formulated than they do in the other stories. Well, I would argue that the Jacob story is a perfect example, although because it's such an elaborate story, some of the parts of the story are told twice. Same thing with the David story. It's quite complex analyzing it because there are many repetitive episodes. However, going back to Moses, you're right that it's very clear that Moses establishes a cult. Now, Moses, as a younger brother, right, is favored by God, as are all younger brothers and sisters throughout the Bible. You know, just this point is enough to establish that you have divine favor, because if you didn't have divine favor, you wouldn't ordinarily be on top. You would be inferior to an older brother or sister, but you're becoming... Um, in a certain way, dominant over older brothers, older sisters, is a sign that it's not the conventions of society that are determining, determining your position. It's not nature. It's not law. It's rather something that's extraordinary. And in this case, it's divine election. So and I want to go into the, to some of the traits now on top of that. So well, let's always... get back to the uh, thing about uh, Moses. Sure. You know, and, you know, seeking revelation. Finish that, okay? Please. Yes, okay. So when the fugitive hero ordinarily wants to return home, but he want, he needs a sign from the god or gods or goddess that the time is propitious for him to return home. So how does he do that? Usually practices divination. There are different types of divination, which I won't go into right now. But what Moses does is what some others do which is to ask an oracle. That is, you ask, you go to a place 
where it's known that you can ask yes or no questions of the deity. Maybe there's a prophet or a priest who's running the oracle. Maybe you can do it on your own because it's a holy site. But however it was run, Moses seems to purposely lead his flocks into Midian, into the desert, into the wilderness, to the mountain which is called Chorev or Choreb in the biblical text in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. It's also known in other traditions as Mount Sinai, and it's called the mountain of God. So many commentators ask, how can it be called the mountain of God when he hasn't heard a revelation there yet? But that's the whole point. I think originally in the story, Moses goes to the mountain in order to get a revelation. And at the end of the story, two chapters later, in chapter 4, verse 20, Moses receives a revelation from God, an order from God, saying, you must now go back to Egypt because all of the people who wanted to slay you are dead. It's safe to go back. Now, in the middle, there's a whole negotiation between God and Moses at the burning bush where God initiates the encounter with Moses, and Moses finds five different excuses not to go back to Egypt. Never once does he mention that there are people who were out to get him. How come? Well, I would say it's because we have two different layers to the story. In the earliest version of the story, which conforms more to the fugitive Euro pattern, he goes to the mountain. He wants to know, is it safe to go home? Have the people who are trying to kill him died yet? And then God answers him through the oracle, yes, it's safe to go home. Go back now. In the middle, however, God tries to pigeonhole Moses into agreeing to go back to Egypt in order to free the Israelites from servitude there. And he has to browbeat Moses, in a sense, in order to get him to agree. Finally, Moses agrees. He takes leave of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he's ready to go back. And it's only then that he receives this command by God to go back. So what I am suggesting, and others have suggested something similar before me, is that in between, we have this encounter which transforms the story of Moses into the story of Israel. That is, the story is not really interested, the narrator is not so interested in Moses' own needs, Moses' own status, Moses' you know, desire to be back with his family in Egypt. Rather, the narrator wants to take this earlier version of the story and turn it upside down. It's now God who seeks out Moses in order to have Moses go back to Egypt and free the Israelites, because that's what God's interest is in this particular story. So the people of Israel become the fugitive hero, and it's no longer Moses. That's right. That's right. Now, since you mentioned that, there is a biblical text in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, which actually indicates that Israel perceived itself in this way, when in Deuteronomy 26, which describes what the Israelites will do when they get into the land of Israel. They will harvest their crops, and then they will bring their fruits to the local shrine. They will set them before the local priest, and then they are meant to recite a particular formula. And I'm going to read it, if that's okay. Sure. I'll read it first in Hebrew. Arami oved avi vayered mitzrayma vayagor sham b'metei ma'at vayisham 
לגוי גדול, עצוב ורב. My ancestor, my אב, my father, my ancestor was a fugitive Aramean. And you have to understand that the verb avad there is used in a way it's used in a few times elsewhere in the Bible, but it, we know well what it means because of the cognate in Akkadian, which is the earliest Vestic Semitic language, where the nif'al, or passive conjugation of abadu, or abatu in Akkadian, is actually the regular term for fleeing, or fugitive. It's used of fugitive slaves, for example. All right, so my, my answer Is that with the, with the olive or iron? In, in a, it's with an olive. Okay, so it's like from, to be lost, like the same root from... from to be lost. It's right. the same word, except that an earlier meaning of it is, well, you could say that someone who's a fugitive is someone who makes himself lost. Right. Okay. okay. But it's used that way ordinarily in Akkadian, and it's very often the case that in formulas like this, in old uh, creedal texts in uh, the Bible, we find archaic usages. In early biblical law, for example, find the same phenomenon. In any case, so what the Israelite farmer is supposed to say is, my father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt. He dwelled there with very few people, but there he became a great nation, right? uh, very large and powerful, now very numerous. And of course, that's describing Jacob because he was the, the ancestor who went down to Egypt when Joseph was the viceroy of Egypt. And he went down, it says, with only 17 souls. And then they became you know, tens and tens of thousands of people. And uh, from there they left. Okay, so the Israelites then see themselves right, as the children of this original Jacob, whose name was also Israel. They are Israel. And they, of course, are outside their homeland in Egypt for a long time in exile. And then they were able to return to their land and become dominant in the land, according to the biblical narrative. And you can find virtually all the parts of the fugitive hero narrative pattern in the story of Israel. That's why I think the story was so popular in the Hebrew Bible. In your opinion, do you see, or from your experience, do you see this pattern being put on older oral traditions and maybe the you know, the authors when they finally compiled all these stories into into one text that things were edited or adapted to certain purposes like for instance when you look at the story of David's son Absalom you see certain patterns where it does fit but then obviously it doesn't work out for him and he doesn't turn out triumphant could that have been an older tradition an older story that then they cut off the end or they edited it right well you're asking a very uh, interesting question which is that when you have a story that conforms to a particular pattern, does that make the story less historical or more historical? You see, these patterns, uh, because they don't involve many mythological elements the way that, let's say, Homer's Odyssey does, right? these stories are much more realistic, the stories that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Right? And also in the Near East, because they... And, and, and the Near Eastern stories. Right, that's Some right. of them are actual historical figures, we know, we okay. know for a fact. No, no, there's no question. Legends grow up primarily around historical figures. The question is whether the story, you know, is legendary or the story is what we would call more historical. Okay, so here's the, the, this is the dilemma. The story conforms to things that actually happen. Okay, but the fact that a particular narrative is shaped in a narrative pattern makes you suspect that the details of the story are being 
cherry-picked or selected or adapted or completely transformed in order to suit the particular pattern that you want. And as I explained before, I think you want to use this fugitive hero pattern when you're trying to represent a particular hero as being divinely elected. Got you. So the Moses story could have been different at some point. And then well, whenever I, the authors, you know, yes, so you believe probably, it was. It probably was. But the purpose of the Bible was not the writing of modern history, right? The purpose of the Bible is to convey theological, moral, ideational, right, ideas. So it's kind of like a, like a movie biopic, you know, yes. where a movie, yes. you know, to take Braveheart. It's not an accurate historical telling of, of William Wallace and, and that war, but it takes certain kernels of history and then adapts it to tell a story that works on screen. Right. But in, in this case, the object, I think, is not particularly entertainment or amusement, which I think most Hollywood films are. Mm. Right, are, are they're about entertainment. They try to, yeah. Right. Okay. But, and there are formulas for those films also. You know, at a certain point, you've got to get the audience in suspense. And another point, you've got to make the audience laugh. Another point, you have to make the audience cry, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not you know, deeply familiar with all of these strategies, but I understand they exist. In ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, we have stories that must have been told about many figures. And we also have, we know that there were texts that anticipated or preceded the texts that we have in the biblical text. For example, in Numbers chapter 21, they quote the book or the document or the collection of the battles of Adonai, God, uh, Israel's God. And there's in the book of Joshua, in the book of Samuel, and probably also in the book of Kings, we have reference to the book of Yeshua. I've written on these things too, because I'm very interested in addition to the Fugitive Hero pattern, I'm interested in earlier epics and earlier literature that preceded the formation of the Hebrew Bible. So am I. And, and one question I have on that point, we shouldn't get too distracted on it because it's not totally related, but I had read something also that like the, the song of, the song of the sea or the song, the song the Israelites sing after the, the Egyptians are vanquished in, in the Reed Sea. That's a very old tradition, correct? Okay. That, I wouldn't say it's a, it's an old tradition, but that story, it's been suggested that that's the story behind it is patterned on the myth of battle, of combat between the storm god and the sea. Except that in this case, the storm god battles the historical enemy of God and God's people, the Israelites, at the sea. In a sense, removing that element of the plot, but maintaining the location and the idea of combat. But in this case, there is no real resistance to the storm god, because in this case, the storm god is Israel's god, who doesn't get resisted when up against, uh, certainly not uh, up against human enemies or contenders. And what do we know about the storm god's popularity in, in northern tradition, northern Israel traditions? The storm god was the active god of the pantheon. What we know about the Canaanite pantheon, which, and I'm now including uh, Syria and uh, what the archaeologists call Palestine, or Syria, Canaan, Syro, Canaan, or Syria, Lebanon, and Israel today, also eastern Syria, where the Arameans were. The head of the pantheon was probably El, the father of the gods, who I see as the kind of president of the company, 
or the chairman of the board, rather. And the the storm god is the chief executive officer who does you know all of the action, but who needs permission, authorization from the chairman of the board, who is the father god. Yeah, yeah. So the storm gods are a major god. And of course, the reason that the storm god would be so prominent in that part of the world is that life depends on fertility and fertility depends on rain. Got it. So to go back to, I want to touch on a couple of the traits of the fugitive hero pattern and why it was important to the later authors who compiled the stories of the Bible. So the younger brother we kind of touched on already. And I think if I understand you correctly, it's mainly because this person is special. They're chosen by God. It's not a natural law that they're going to inherit the kingdom or their father's household and, and rule, correct? That's right. So, and then also when you get to, it's just something that always appears in, in these stories, the number seven. So seven years in exile. Oh, okay. There's other, you know. Okay. Seven doesn't occur in all the stories. In all of the stories, it's an optional feature. Uh, okay. In the story of Nabonidus, for example, it's 10. Uh, however, in Mesopotamia, the numbers work a little differently. But seven, as you know, is, you know, three and then another four. It's three plus three plus one. You know, it's a, it's also known as the number of in in our memory, that is, there's a, an article by George Miller, who is a famous uh, and important experimental psychologist at Harvard University, you know, who showed, you know, that if you try to remember a sequence of numbers or items, you will remember seven plus or minus. Hmm. Or like that. Most people will. Seven is very basic, and we find in many stories of an epic or legendary character, you could say folk literature that the prominent numbers are 3, 7, and 10. And in the Bible, that's certainly the case. When it comes, of course, to a tribal completion, that is, how many tribes does it take or how many sons does it take to make a complete people, then the number is 12, right? So you have, you know, 12 sons of Nahor, the Aramean, brother of Abraham. You have, you know, 12 sons of, of Ishmael, and eventually you have, 12 sons of Jacob. And this is a typological pattern. And then what about the marrying the the host's daughter in exile? What purpose does that serve? Okay. So this is an interesting part. This is also optional. It's not in all of the stories. It's not, for example, in the story of Idrini, nothing about that. And it's not in the two Mesopotamian stories from the first millennium. I find that to be very interesting because there have been scholars who thought that the stories in the Bible, like the story of Jacob, were influenced by these Mesopotamian stories, but that can't be because the story of Jacob right, features in a very prominent way the marriage of Jacob not to just one, but to two daughters of his host. Okay, but it is part of the pattern. It's found in the earliest exemplar, the story of Sinaway the Egyptian. Okay, so what this story shows is that even in exile, the favor is shown to the hero, right? He's able to acclimate. He's not only to adapt, but he's given a prominent position. He's able to marry into an important person's household. He's given a position of authority. We see this very clearly in the story of Sinaway, for example, where he becomes quite the local hero, and he saves local leaders from an onslaught of hostile tribes. Got it. We find it. We find it also in biblical stories, and it's interesting to me that in the story of when Israel left Egypt, it's important to say that the Israelites also married their into their host, 
which is to say they intermarried with some Egyptians, which accounts for the Arab Rav, right, the large mixture of people who left Egypt together with the Israelites. Interesting. And then what about the the other deviations from, or not deviations, but they're the pattern continues on, and I'm interested to know if it, in some of these stories, if that's also part of the, the fugitive hero pattern that's found in extra-biblical sources. So, for example, the less attractive traits of these heroes and their downfall and then eventual rise again, right? So, David sins and his punishments and then his eventual rise again. Same thing with Moses. Is that part of the pattern also, or is that unique to the biblical authors? Yes. Well, of course, I wouldn't compare the nature of Moses' sin you know, to the nature of David's sins. Right. That's a political drama of a whole, you know, different nature. Nevertheless, what I would answer is that once you get beyond the skeleton of the fugitive hero pattern, the stories each go their own way. For example, the story of Esar Hadon, you know, leads into the story of many different conquests that he made afterwards, you know, which does not conform to most of the other stories. They each go their own way. And so I wouldn't make any generalization. What I would say is that biblical stories about human beings always portray human beings as flawed. And in a certain way, I don't know, I could get, I don't know if I'll get in any trouble for saying this, but I think people know that, you know, the biblical God also is a learner, right? That God has to, you know, check oneself at uh, certain points. And God says, for example, the beginning of the flood story, you know, I regret that I created human beings. And so God has to um, resolve, you know, the problem of so many rotten human beings you know, by bringing a flood, which is something that God sees as violent, destructive, and not something to ever be repeated. So that he promises Noah after the flood, I will never do this again. Right. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think that the, the biblical God can also be criticized, which makes God much more accessible you know, to people. You can have a relationship, you know, with a God who is a little more like you than a God, you know, who's completely remote and transcendent. And to go back to the stories going their own way after a certain point, is that the same case when it comes to like, why not all the heroes from, from those stories are part of that pattern? So you take like Joshua, right? Is he considered part of the Israel Exodus story? So that's why he doesn't, he doesn't follow that pattern as well? Okay. Well, the story of Joshua is really uh, very limited, right? It's about how he, he takes over from Moses, and he does manifest a number of traits that Moses also manifests. He, he repeats a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. You know, Moses leads the Israelites across you know, the, the sea. Joshua leads the people across the Jordan. And that story of the crossing of the Jordan explicitly alludes back to the story of the crossing of the sea. The narrator is quite aware you know, of the ways that Joshua repeats or uh, echoes, you know, the events in the life of Moses. But his job is quite limited or delimited, right? He, he has to conquer as much as possible of the land for the Israelite tribes and to see that the tribes take up residence and settle in the various areas of the land. Nevertheless, the story is not a complete success, as the book of Joshua itself indicates. Talks about, especially if you look, for example, at Joshua chapter 13. The Israelites do not conquer the entire land. And when you get to the next book, the book of Judges, chapter 1 in Judges tells all about the failures of the Israelite tribes to take total control. And the reason that they couldn't take total control, right, is explained in a couple of ways, right? One is 
to leave Canaanites in the land so that the Israelites are continually tempted to go after foreign uh, gods and cultures uh, and to see whether they'll be loyal to Israel's God or not, and as punishment uh, for, you know, they're not being completely faithful uh, right. to their God. So this pattern shapes the core of the most important stories of the biblical narrative, but I guess in a sense, in your opinion, how has it shaped the the modern, not necessarily modern, but how, how did it affect the trajectory of Judaism and the Jewish religion and, and the Jewish people on into the future? Okay. I think it would be much too complicated to try to adapt this or, or uh, to look for correspondences between this pattern and the story of the Jewish people. But in general, right, the Jewish people, you know, has been in various diasporas, you know, for a long time, beginning already in the biblical period, right? The uh, Egyptian diaspora begins already before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. There's already been a kind of diaspora of the assimilated tribes of the north throughout the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian diaspora remains a diaspora, which is to say not all of the Babylonian Judeans return to the land of Israel when they can after the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus the Persian. And so we have a whole series of exiles, some of them forced, some of them by choice. But throughout the entire period, there's a longing to return to the land to be one people, again, one people on its land. Now, of course, the fact is that there are many people in the world, Jews in the world, who could make Aliyah and settle in the land of Israel today, who choose not to. And I'm not being judgmental about them. You know, I myself now live in Israel, and as you can tell from my accent, you know, was uh, born in the diaspora. Nevertheless, I don't believe that we, we should look for all of these factors in that we find in the fugitive hero story, you know, in the story of the Israelites. I don't believe that this story became a myth of the Jews that they took wherever they went. By myth, I mean a story that shapes their outlook, a story that shapes their identity, their culture, and who they are. Stories that we right. tell in order to bring people together in a sharing of the culture. I don't think that that's the case. I believe that this is a particular pattern that is limited to the ancient Near East and the Israelites in the ancient Near East, which is to say the Hebrew Bible. The only exception might be, as far as I know, that one of my former students has suggested that the story of Muhammad right, uh, may, in fact, show most of the features of the fugitive hero pattern. And he's written something up about this. And if I continue to agree that uh, there is something to this, that somehow the writers internalized this story from reading biblical texts or maybe inherited from an earlier period in pre-Islamic Arabian culture, but then I will include it as an appendix under his name, of course, in the book that I'm planning to write. In. Right. That was interesting to me, too. I noticed that as well. And then I was going to ask, do you see any traces of it in later messianic traditions, whether it is the Jesus story or or others from that time that may not be ancient, ancient antiquity, you know, not, but the Roman period, per se. I don't know of any cases. The Jesus story is not this story at all. He was not exiled in the same way. He does not return to his homeland. I mean, I think we have to take seriously the idea, you know, that of the exile on the one hand and the return to mm-hmm. the position 
of honor and or dominion on the other hand. So tell me a little bit about the current research you're working on and the current books you're working on. Oh, okay. Well, what's occupying me most in recent years, in addition to The Fugitive Hero, which is I've been working on for years, and now I'm also looking at evidence for pre-biblical Israelite myths, or epics, I should say, really, epic literature uh, that was transformed in uh, writing biblical prose. This is an idea, you know, that goes back early in the 20th century. It was made most, uh, was put forth most prominently by Moshe David or Umberto Casuto. And uh, there are several of us who have been working in this, and I'm planning to do a major project in this. However, most of my work uh, still revolves around the book of Job. I've just uh, completed an annotated translation, which I've worked on very hard over the last uh, 10 years, but it includes research that I've been doing and material that I learned from my teacher, H.L. Uh, Ginsberg, a long time ago, over 40 years ago. And that book, my annotated translation, will be published later this year by Yale University Press. Uh, I would like to think that this is as close as anyone is able to get in our day to what the meaning of the book of Job was when it was first composed. And the Fugitive Hero research that you're working on, is that going to be compiled into a a book as well? Yes, I'm uh, working on a book which also is contracted with uh, Yale University Press. Sounds very interesting. I can't wait to read those when they come out. Thank you. I look forward to publishing. So thanks again for doing this. This was very interesting for me, and I appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to your future work. Thank you very much. Shalom. We'll see you.